It's January 2017, and the sound of power tools rises up out of Parky Cueve, the GAA's new stadium on the edge of Cork City. High in the stand, the drill is boring into concrete. Yeah, basically what they're doing now at the moment is they're drilling in holes because they're going to be putting in some sort of piping. To hold this the is Michael shelf. Martin. He's a 35-year-old builder and father of four from Limerick. And then they'll come along then maybe next week or two weeks when that section is right and they'll start inserting the chairs into it then. Every morning he breaks for tea at 10. Where are you? Down the maze? All right. And talks about the job. We look at it now and in five months' time the place is going to be packed with people for the Munster final. Only some of the other workers are more interested in Michael's job before Parky Cueve. And, like, if you go to Iraq, they use sticks as scaffolding and there's no hard hats, there's no high-vise, there's no boots. Because in 2016, it wasn't the sound of drills ringing in Michael Martin's ears, but the sound of gunfire. War with ISIS. Kurdish troops in a frontline battle with an enemy that took their land. They are taking it back. It began with coalition airstrikes, hitting ISIS in three villages. I remember being in Macmore one night on Facebook, talking to my cousin here in Ireland at about four o'clock in the morning, Iraqi time. Tell them, I text them back in ten minutes because there's an airstrike coming in. Michael went to the Middle East to fight with the Peshmerga, a kind of Kurdish national resistance group, against Daesh, better known as ISIS. The Islamic terrorist group put a bounty on his head and the heads of foreign fighters, who often post about their experiences on Facebook. Photographs from their Facebook pages might suggest they're war junkies on a gap year, but they have risked their lives on the front line alongside a hundred or so other foreigners, and their commitment to the Kurdish cause is beyond doubt. It's believed more than 25 Western volunteers have been killed fighting Islamic State in the region and about a dozen Irish citizens are thought to be fighting the group there now. In Guare and Macmore, we had suicide attacks and they came through the road blockage in trucks and cars and blew themselves up. So what makes people like Michael risk their lives to fight ISIS? Um, they're all looking to prove something. They want to show people, go, well, the world's not doing anything about Islamic State, but I'm going to prepare to go out by myself as a volunteer and do it. And how did this builder and father end up there battling the world's most ruthless terrorist organisation. To understand what motivates a person to fight ISIS, we need to understand Michael and his place in a world where terrorists have attacked much closer to home in recent months. As well as London Bridge, officers have also responded to an incident in Borough Market. Let's go back to the beginning. In 1983, the IRA kidnapped Don Tidy. Cork won the All-Ireland Hurling final and in Iraq, Kurdish separatists rose up against Saddam Hussein. And in a Limerick hospital, Michael Martin was born. Growing up, his family move around a lot and the reason they move around is because of his father's job. My father was in the Irish Army as a medic and he got transferred from uh, Cork to Clonmel and then back to Cork, so... Then when I come home, see my dad come home from work in the army jeep of, yeah, it sort of sinked in, all right. But Michael's dad isn't the only family member with a background in the military. My granddad served in the Irish Defence Forces for about 37 years. 
when I was going up to visit him on the weekends as a young boy, like he'd have his stories and we'd watch more films together and medals and all that. Michael is fascinated by his granddad's stories. And uh, he'd done like five tours of the Leb, one of Bosnia, two of the Congo. But one story stands out because it's one of the most famous chapters in Ireland's military history. A United Nations Security Council resolution passed in February of 1961 following the murder of Congolese Premier Patrice Lumumba was to have severe repercussions for a company of Irish troops in the Congo later that year. And there was a letter sent home to my grandmother that he was MIA missing in action and he turned up then a week later. They found him out in the bush, uh, stabbed, so they patched him up and sent him home. If his grandfather's story shaped his childhood, then news Michael hears as an eight-year-old in 1991 starts shaping his view of the world. Good morning, it's eight o'clock on Thursday, the 2nd of August. You're listening to Morning Ireland. The headlines, Iraqi troops have invaded Kuwait. They've occupied the capital where heavy fighting has been reported. And I remember sitting at home with the old box TV, just a small bit bigger than a portable, and um, watching it on the TV. And hearing about Saddam gassing all these people and 19, 20,000 people and killing Kurds. Occupying or surrounding key government installations and ministries, including the. But I remember saying, like, why is this happening? And as a child, then, as I was growing up more, becoming a teenager, I just kept the interest on seeing it on the TV. Couldn't understand why in our countries there's nothing like this, but over there it's happening all the time. The Gulf War ends, and in 1999, the family are in Cork. Michael is going to the North Monastery Secondary School and hurling with Glen Rovers. At 16, I was playing for the Glen. I was still in school. Um, life was grand. We had a nice big family home out in Glenmire. Everything was grand. Until one afternoon, when Michael's world starts tumbling down. The space of a week, this bombshell came out and just destroyed everything. The newspapers are full of headlines about soldiers claiming for hearing loss. But Michael suffers a different loss. My father came out of the army and then he released the bombshell that he was gay. I was 16, my sister was 11 and my other sister was 7. So, you know, you're being called your dad as a bender and a faggot. And very, very upsetting. Sometimes you didn't know you even know what to do, you know. Michael's parents separate. He struggles to cope. And how significant do you think all that was in shaping you? Yeah, there was a lot of anger there. there was, I tried to understand it as well. I did understand it. But it's like every time we got so close that we'd have a barony or an argument and it would just put things three or four steps back to where they were before. So he drops out of school and starts working on building sites. I was getting £150 a week, 40 to the mother or whatever, and then I had £110 for myself for the week. It was great. Hanging around the city with the boys, no responsibilities, drinking cans, smoking, taking ecstasy as they was in the, the club culture at the time here in Cork and Limerick, you know, so... And when he's not on the sites, he's in the old Victoria Sporting Club. Just there by Patrick's Bridge. Actually, he's there playing snooker in 2001 when someone interrupts his game and turns up the TV. Hijacked aircraft crash into the World Trade Centre in Manhattan in New York. There was a TV on in the corner and I looked up and it was all over the news, just the images of the two planes flying into the building. And I says, we're at war. This is going to be big. 
The Pentagon has also struck in what appears to be a series of coordinated terrorist attacks. Michael and the customers look at the 9-11 attacks in disbelief, like we all did. No one knew then that Britain and America would end up in long wars in the Middle East. And Michael couldn't have known that this attack would one day lead him to a dusty desert and Islamic terrorists. And I remember going to London then two days later on the bus, the Eurolines bus, to go and stay with my uncle and see what, what I was going to make with my life, really. Back in Parky Cueve, it's early afternoon and workers are attaching thick chains to a roof section. When the crane lifts that on top of the roof, all work on the side stops. So everybody has to leave the site and come out around here, around the front gate. You know, Michael is doing block work in the upper stand, but they're all told to leave the site until the roof is on. Smoking a cigarette at the front gate, Michael says that the Irish Army wasn't recruiting in 2001. So when the bus pulls into London, he goes along to the British Army Recruitment Centre near Tottenham. And I was there just on a normal meeting, seeing was I going to branch in and make a career out of the British Army. And yeah, they brought us down to the gun room and they let us hold the SA80A1. I thought for myself in my head, I'm never going to be able to lift this thing up and shoot it all day because it's just weighed so heavy, you know. But um, yeah, that was my first experience of holding a real functioning rifle now. He decides against signing up, comes back to Ireland and seven years pass. But he still wants to be a soldier. So in 2008, he joins the Royal Irish Regiment in the north of Ireland. I've done my training up in, in a skill in Belfast. I went over to Catterick then, to the School of Infantry in just outside Newcastle. And um, there then I stayed then for six and a half months doing basic training, then uh, passed out and went to my regiment then in Birmingham. Michael finishes his training in England, but big things are happening in his life in Ireland too. I miss the woman I married and I had a couple of kids with her and lived a steady army life. In England, Michael buys into life as a professional soldier, but his personal life in Ireland is becoming a much bigger challenge. Yeah, I was born, you know, your normal run-of-the-mill. And then problems then started to happen in the marriage. He's getting ready to go to Afghanistan when he learns devastating news from home. Well, I suppose I'm, I may as well say it out and say it how it is. Um, when I was in England first, training with the British Army, I came home and I got involved in a bit of trouble here in Ireland. Michael assaults the man because he believes he's having an affair with his wife. This isn't the first time he appears before the courts, so they send him to prison. And the Irish Guardi arrested me and put me in prison. And they knew I was in the British Army, but they didn't disclose the information to them. After a year, Michael gets out. But his marriage is over. There's only one place he can go. I uh, contacted the army and I said, what's the story here? Why didn't you come get me? But rejoining the army means he has to go to prison again. Military prison. Basically, they said they were willing to take me back and I returned on my own free will, handed myself in and went to military prison and I just f focused fully then on, on the British Army and then just tried to stay in and get up the ladder and do whatever. In his cell, Michael hears about soldiers dying in Afghanistan and public opinion is turning against the war. Serious questions are being asked about Britain's military operations in Afghanistan after three soldiers travelling in the UK's best armoured vehicle were killed in Helmand province by a roadside bomb planted... But by 2014, soldiers are still being sent and Michael gets a second chance. Yeah, I was in Helmand. I was up in Lashagar for a while, Bastion. 
they were trying to like focus their attention on bigger areas to gain bigger ground and stuff like that. And the Americans were there as well and they had a big push on and the British people were saying what they were usually saying, oh, we shouldn't be in Afghanistan and we shouldn't be fighting there. But away from all the politics, in the remote desert of Helmand province, war with the Taliban couldn't have felt more peaceful. You're just doing things to basically pass the time. You're counting stock, you're counting supplies, you're checking things, you're rechecking things. Uh, boring, boring as fuck. And that's the God's honest truth. Unless you're out in a fob or patrolling, it's, it's boring as hell. Michael feels he's been trained to fight a war that's no longer raging. For the average person in the street, they think, why would you want to go somewhere dangerous? But obviously, this is what you're trying to do. You're not a soldier until, unless you go on tour. You're not a soldier unless you've been in conflict, in battle, you know. In 2014, Michael finishes his tour and comes back to England. His days are filled with training drills. I had a training exercise then um, up in North Yorkshire. Uh, live grenade training exercise. One afternoon, his commanding officer tells him to lead a simulated attack up a hill. But close to the top, he runs into a situation more dangerous than anything he faced in Afghanistan, when a grenade flies through the air and detonates close to his head. And um, I hit the ground as usual and I got up and I felt it straight away. My, my ears were ringing and my head was banging and people were talking to me and I couldn't hear them. Michael tries to hide the injury, but the army find out he's a ruptured eardrum. They take him off active duty and give him a new role. They assigned me to a desk job and I was just, I was just a, a man in uniform doing paper and computer work for the next few months. And uh, I found it hard because I, would, I wasn't able to just go away and join another army because, you know, at my age and my hearing, I wouldn't have got accepted anywhere. But from behind his desk in North Yorkshire, Michael starts following the war in Syria and in particular northern Iraq where Kurdish groups like the Peshmerga are fighting ISIS. I don't know how much you can see on this line of the scene in Kobani this morning. That is the area, the eastern edge of the city, which Islamic State fighters entered a couple of days ago. Their flags, crucially, are still flying from a building and a hill. And it was then that I started to get involved with the Peshmerga because a couple of my friends had gone out there in the same position myself. They'd been discharged and they didn't want to leave. And they told me that it wasn't all lost. Michael logs on to the Peshmerga Facebook page and sends them a message saying he wants to join. For two months, the conversation bounces backwards and forwards between the Middle East and North Yorkshire. Michael is told the Peshmerga don't pay volunteers. If he wants to fight ISIS, he'll have to pay for the privilege to do it. But they tell him how to get into Iraq. I didn't tell much people here in Ireland that I was going because you have to go through customs, sort your own transport, um, your connections. So I kept everything on the QT. Around this time, ISIS released more videos of horrific executions. For a lot of people, the images are too graphic to watch. There's significant concern that ISIS may be looking to capture more uh, hostages, uh, more uh, Americans, more internationals, more Europeans, so that they can hold them and use them for these terrible propaganda purposes. But Michael isn't put off. On the 2nd of February 2016, Michael meets an American volunteer in Heathrow Airport. I had friends, contacts, um, and we all boarded a plane together to Jordan. And they fly on to Erbil in Iraq. It's the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan and the territory the Peshmerga defend against ISIS. When we arrived in Erbil, it was 9am in the morning. 
And what I noticed around the airport, everybody is an AK-47. The soldiers, the guards, even some of the people, you know. And it was just crazy. Did you feel vulnerable at any point when you were trying to get in? I always felt vulnerable, but not to the state where I showed people. I'm five foot five, I'm nine and a half stone. I'm not The Rock, I'm not Vin Diesel, do you know what I mean? Of course I'm going to feel vulnerable. On the far side of security, a Peshmerga contact is waiting to collect him. He took us to a hotel at first, and they got us whiskey and chicken and made us feel welcome. It was all taken nice and easy. We had about three hours in the local commander's office drinking tea, smoking fags. The commander tells Michael he's sending him to a town called Machmore. It's 40 kilometres south of Erbil and just five kilometres from the ISIS front line. But his lift isn't coming for another two days. We stayed in the hotel and just got into civilian clothes and walked around on the whole tourist thing. And his first impression of Iraq couldn't be more different to the Iraq he grew up watching on his granddad's TV. They have screens there like you'd see in um, Hollywood, you know, in Las Vegas. These big screens on the side of shops with uh, pictures of Citroen watches and stuff like that and uh, like just marble footpaths and stuff like that. It's beautiful. The hotels over there are absolutely beautiful. The antiques, the furniture, the interior design. But the landscape changes when he gets to Macmore, a town once occupied by ISIS. Buildings are all half destroyed. There's all dash writing all over the walls in Arabic. Um, we saw basically homemade gallows where they were hanging people and uh, tying people's arms up high so they could beat them and stuff. You can see the bullet holes, mortar holes, the burns on the ground from explosions. The town reminds Michael of a scene from a movie. I think it's in The Lord of the Rings number two where um, there was a city besieged and... Um, the orcs are coming across and, and they're coming across the river into the city. If you just put a bit of sunshine in there and a bit of dust and sand, that's Macmore. It's weird because I've talked to a lot of other volunteers and people who went there on the road and they said they were scared. I wasn't scared. I was more anxious, maybe, in a way. I was excited and I wanted to get the ball rolling as quick as possible. Michael is shown to his quarters, given a Kurdish name, Zirak, and the next morning he begins passing on skills he learned in the British Army. An army who believes he's on medical leave in England, not preparing to fight ISIS in Iraq. We showed them how to strip weapons properly, clean them properly, assemble them in the dark, maintain in their areas how to build bunkers. But it's Peshmerga policy to keep Michael and other volunteers away from the front line. They valued our opinions and they valued our expertise, so they wanted us to stay back and try and teach them and train them rather than go out all gung-ho and die, you know. Emil Gishan is an ex-Royal Marine commando working as a journalist in Iraq and Syria. He's followed a path like Michael's through the Middle East. Well, generally they'll say to you that they're for humanitarian reasons or women are getting slaughtered, children are dying, so they're going out for the cause. He describes the volunteers he's been meeting as soldiers looking for battlefield experience, adventure tourists and religious crusaders. He hasn't met Michael, but he has experienced the welcome from locals who just can't believe they're all paying to be there. What do the Peshmerga and the YPG think of these foreign fighters coming across and joining up with them? All the locals respect Western volunteers of coming out and fighting, and they show them respect for the fact is they're volunteering to go there. None of these guys earn any money. They pay out their own pockets. Guys sell their cars, sell their homes. They sell up everything they've got to go out for what they believe is a just cause. But Emil says many volunteers have no idea 
how this cause is going to play out. So a lot of these volunteers fly in to Erbil, Sulaymania in northern Kurdistan. They expect to get off the plane and get bullets flying around the place. It's not the case. The reality of war is 99% of the time you sit on your backside watching a bit of no man land and they see Islamic State 300 metres away. And they're like, well, I'm here to fight Islamic State. Why aren't you allowing me to fight them? I can see them. And they're like, well, we're waiting for orders. This is war. It's not as much action as, as they think it is. So, well, not all a lot of them, but there are some guys who I've met who embellish their stories. Now that Michael has met his unit, he has to support them as they try and take back nearby villages under ISIS control. While the Peshmerga were liberating them villages, we were more um, first aid care. Uh, if they were dehydrated, we give them water. If we got attacked, we fight back. But walking through the villages, it feels like death has seeped like a dark water into every corner of Iraq. When you go into a building, there's a body hanging in the rafters in the steel. That body's been there for three or four months, totally decayed, black. Amazing, because the teeth are still pearly white, you know. A lot of bodies are just left there to rot and decay and... It's like normal. People are just driving past them, walking past them, looking at them. Some bodies are dash. ISIS fighters like, and we got to understand that these people hate ISIS. They hate them so much. These people want to get their bodies and drag them through the streets and mutilate them. And who are we to argue with that? It's, you know, so it is what it is, I suppose. You know what I mean? But the sight of dead and decaying bodies aren't nearly as unnerving as the stories from behind enemy lines. A couple of Kurdish Peshmerga fighters were captured in Macmore. One was a father of four children, like myself. They were brought to Mosul and they were executed in the middle of the city, beheaded as an example to show the civilians and stuff. Only, even more than the Kurds, Dash want the volunteers who have travelled all this way to fight them and they put bounties on their heads worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. That was my only fear, not a fear of fighting or death. It was mainly the fear of being ambushed and taken hostage, you know. Michael hears stories of Western volunteers taking their own lives rather than risk capture, and he suggests he do the same. You know, do you have a choice at that point? Do you just accept the capture or would you...? Well, in, in my military days, in the butt of the rifle, there was always a little place where you could put anything you want, like a fag or a matchstick. Well, if there's no bullet in there, you're not going to be doing what you're going to be doing. But me, myself, I wouldn't be taken prisoner. Like, I'd rather, you know, I don't have to explain it. So that's what people's interpretation is their own business. But that's just my, my own thought, you know. Michael adapts to his surroundings, but there's lots of hanging around. And then... You could give all day lying around. It could be a holy day or a holiday. No work. Every, every Muslim man off praying with his family and up to their mountains for the picnics or whatever. And then suddenly, then 7, 8 o'clock, the lieutenant could come in and say, gear on, we're under attack from suicide bombers for the night. We've had information. Next thing you know, you're pulling a 12, 10, 12-hour 12 guard shift. Over a mile area, you might get hit in the southwest corner or the northwest corner. You know about. Maybe at the same time, maybe apart. You're just sitting there and you're thinking, this must be a dream, or this, I've wanted to do this since I was a boy and now it's really happening, and you know, it's, 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 it's surreal, like, you know. The coalition's reaction to the suicide attacks is to call in airstrikes. A couple of times I haven't seen the plane, but I've heard the plane, and next thing, the whole ground shakes and the sky goes red and the windows in the building shatter and... 
Usually silence follows an explosion, but after one airstrike, Michael is stunned to hear something else coming from the ISIS fighters. Three, four o'clock in the morning, you hear like LL Cool J and all these American rappers coming from speakers, you know? And then suddenly, total blackness while the airstrikes come. After the airstrikes, party on again. Seven weeks in, and on March 22nd, 2016, ISIS attacked Brussels. Headlines this Tuesday lunchtime. At least two dozen people and rising are reported to have been killed in bomb attacks on Brussels' transport network this morning. But the story barely registers with Michael in Iraq. He's supporting a Peshmerga unit waiting to attack a small village. And then we were all formed up in a straight line on the outskirts of the village and dash ISIS were inside the village. So we're just all lying around looking through our scopes and stuff like that. He stands on the back of a truck and watches artillery rain down on the village. Chunks of mortar blow off buildings and a smell of burning fills the air. They drove on in Humvees and other um, warthogs, badgers, stuff like that. And then Dash came out to fight them. Then Dash basically kicked the Iraqis behind and the Iraqis fled back to our lines and we covered their retreat. Eventually the town falls. Peshmerga soldiers walk into the village and Michael discovers foreign passports belonging to men and women who travel to Iraq, like him, but to fight for the other side. If I walk along and I see a body on the ground missing an arm or missing a leg and all burnt up, of course you're going to feel for that human being, but you've got to realise who that human being was. He made, he made his own choice. Nah, you just, you just don't get involved in that side of things. You're there to do a job. You're there for your own reasons, you know. Using cameras on their phones, the fighters photograph some of the passports and bodies they find. Ever since Facebook, people have been posting about their lives on the internet. This doesn't stop in a war zone, and it's how Emil Gishan tracks Western volunteers, by following their Facebook feeds. Every single volunteer that goes to fight with the Peshmerga or the YPG does it through Facebook or Twitter. Emil served in the 2003 war in Iraq, before iPhones, and now he watches soldiers fight Islamic State with cameras and Wi-Fi, as well as guns. They want to go out there, they want to get their pictures off stood next to an ISIS body horse. It's the cliché picture, is all volunteers want to have a picture of them with the Islamic State flag stood there so they can show their friends. So the way social media has changed, it's changed the way men are recruited to go out there. And you can say the same for guys who join the Islamic State through the propaganda through YouTube, Facebook and Twitter. People put photos on Facebook for likes. Um, and this is what a lot of these Western volunteers do. A lot of them have got big followings and they keep their followers updated and generally for donation pages because they aren't getting paid. So they rely on donations coming in through social media. Back at Macmore, the camp has turned into a pit stop for refugees and fleeing ISIS fighters. They'd come straight to our camp because we were the first camp on the line. So we'd give the refugees first aid, food, water. But we also had ISIS prisoners there, Dash prisoners. But the ISIS prisoners Michael meets aren't the fearsome fighters he's been watching in propaganda videos. Did you ever get to speak to a, a captured Dash fighter? Did you ever have yeah, a conversation, did. like rationalising? Yeah. We talked to them, but we won't be having a conversation with them now or anything, but... You'd have to ask them stuff like, you hungry? Uh, food, you know, you'd make hand signals to your mouth and drink signals and, you know, like, at the end of the day, 
They're not going to give information if you don't give them any water or food, you know what I mean? People need water to talk, people need water to live, you know, so I know these people are ISIS, but the bigger picture, if you want to get information on their commanders or whatever, you have to give them water and food, you know. His job is to guard the prisoners and bring them to the toilet. And on one trip, Michael sees signs of abuse on a prisoner's body. And as he was coming back from the field and I was standing about maybe 10 metres behind him with my gun cocked ready, you know, and he turned around and I went up close to him and you could just see it in his face, man. He was, he was uh, withdrawals, you know, he was coming down off some sort of drugs and maybe that's why he ran away, you know. The eyes looked like they were sucked out of their head, they were pure white. The jaws were all hanging down, they had track marks all over the body, you know. My very good friend, Austin, married a Kurdish girl and he's living out there now with her, you know, and he goes to Pesh, like... Um... Back in Parky Cueve, the roof is now on and the workers are going back in. Michael takes out his security pass, but there's another piece of paper in his pocket. You have a white form there now and there looks like Arabic writing on it. Yeah, basically, this is script. This is um, a document from... Uh, my commander in the Peshmerga in Unit 41. It tells whoever I need to show to who I am and that I have basically free role um, and I'm allowed to roam around and that I'm there working with the Peshmerga. Michael uses this letter to roam between Peshmerga units, but moving about means taking big risks. In Ireland, people are warned against hitchhiking for safety reasons, so it's hard to imagine anyone wanting to travel this way in a war zone. If we wanted to travel from one part of the country to another part of the country that our unit weren't going, we'd have to find our own way. So, yeah, you either get a taxi if you get some money off someone or you hitchhike. Outside the city of Mosul, Michael and two volunteers take off walking down a dusty road. They're just a few kilometres from Islamic State territory with only their Peshmerga papers for protection when he hears the sound of a car slowing behind them. And this red Hilux Jeep pulled up beside us, the only Jeep on the road, which is unusual because there's traffic over there 24-7. Being on the side of a road in a war zone with no way to communicate is a situation you'd expect no one to put themselves in. But Emil Gieschen says fighters get conditioned to living in a war zone, even if they don't really consider what will happen if they die in one. If you were to die out there, you're not getting a payout. There is no support, really. You're just hoping that the Foreign Office eventually knocks on your door and goes, oh, by the way, your, your son's been killed. Um, we'll try to get the body back. Um, so, yeah. Back on the road, the car is stopped and the window is down. And there was three boys inside and they just looked like pure dash riders and they stopped, they wound down the window, they looked at us, they said something in Arabic, which I did not understand, and then they drove on. So me and my two friends, we got off the road and we went down and hid behind some boulders down a bit off the road. And we stayed there for a good 15, 20 minutes just sitting there waiting to see when they come back. We don't know what they said, but, yeah, that was vulnerable, all right, because, yeah. like, them boys could have easily come back with two or three more Hiluxes. We'd be in the back, orange jumpsuits on the TV. Happy days, you know. Ten weeks in, and Michael makes it safely to the city of Duhuk. It's April and he's running out of money. Now he's thinking about his family and going home. By chance, I met an American who let me use his phone and I was able to Facebook phone call my daughter and she asked me where I was and I told her I was in Iraq. But there's a situation on the Syrian border and it makes him wonder when he might see his family again. 
Now to the story of 24-year-old Joshua Malloy from Ballylinan in County Leash, who is a former British soldier and is being held in Iraq along with two young British men, Joe Ackerman and Jack Holmes. We got word that there was uh, other Western volunteers in the YPG in Syria. These other volunteers were arrested crossing the border because they had no visas to enter Iraq from Syria, even though they were there helping the Syrian people. Joshua Malloy's arrest makes international headlines, and this attention is bad for Michael, who is still travelling on a two-week holiday visa after nearly four months in the country. He goes to a Peshmerga safe house in Erbil. The Peshmerga said, oh, you will have no problem, Zirak. You will go to the airport without official paper. You will board your plane and go home. They had no problem. Everything was all rolling away nicely until the president shut the border. They tell him to wait for the border restriction to lift. But the situation with the captured volunteers is making him anxious. It was on BBC News and Sky News that there was British men arrested in Syria and stuff like that. And it doesn't take long to, for the locals to put two and two together and see the same faces walking around, you know. Basically keeping our heads down so we won't get picked up and put on the internet in an orange suit, you know. Running out of options and with arrests looking more likely, he makes a call for help. I emailed one of my close friends, uh, a corporal in the British Army, and I just told him straight out, I said, listen, bud, I said, I need your help. Um, You know I'm on medical leave, I I was supposed to be away holidaying and stuff. Explained to him where I went, what I was doing. He emailed me back and said he talked to the CEO. His commanding officer can't believe Michael is in Iraq. He knows about the arrest of the ex-British soldier along with Joshua Malloy, and that Michael has the potential to become an even bigger story. And uh, they said it wouldn't look good now if a British soldier was caught in uh, Iraq on his own fighting with the Peshmerga. So they told me to lie low and keep my head down and just wait out a few days and they'll try and get me out. To stay safe, Michael moves around. He finds a safe hotel and is waiting for a call from England when the person at the centre of the story in Ireland walks in. The men don't know each other, but Michael feels a connection. I didn't have a shower, I didn't have nothing. I looked like a wanderer. I'm sitting in the hotel and in comes Joshua Malai from Ireland. He's an ex-soldier as I was and we're from the same area near enough and, you know, Dermot Dorvin shook his hand and we gave each other a hug and it was that sense of being Irish and being proud and over there, the two of us, you know, away, away from everyone else. Like The Irish government get Joshua Malai out. He flies back to Ireland and into controversy for fighting ISIS and because of this, he won't take part in this documentary. But he does confirm meeting Michael Martin, who he leaves behind him that April afternoon in 2016. I got the call then about three days after it off the British consulate representative in our bill. He says, organise your own ticket, your visa's been sorted, you have to leave the country in one day. Michael gets into his Peshmerga uniform and goes to Erbil Airport. He lines up for security and wonders if his commanding officer has done enough to get him out. Even when I was going through customs, the, the Asaish, which would be the police, they, they stopped me and they, would, they wouldn't leave me board the plane and they were saying, no, 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 you need to pay a visa. All it was, basically, is they were trying to extort money out of me. And I knew that, so I had to stand my ground and after about 40 minutes, they eventually let me through because they knew I wasn't budging. It's only when he gets on board that he relaxes. I got on that plane at 9 o'clock that night and uh, flew to Qatar, uh, Doha, and yeah, I was, I was happy, I was relieved that the ordeal of not getting captured while I was hiding in our bill and stuff like that. But it doesn't last. 
Michael is a servant British soldier who went AWOL to volunteer for another army. At the very least, he expects to be going back to jail. I knew I had a lot more trouble ahead of me because I was flying back into London Heathrow to be arrested by um, SIB and MIA and you know all this. Uh, and so I was trying to concentrate on that as well, you know. I knew the journey wasn't over, you know. When I woke up in London then and uh, just as everyone was sitting up out of seat, there was an announcement uh, saying British security forces want to board the plane. So could everyone remain seated? So I knew it was for me, so I got up and I walked towards them. And, but everyone on the plane looked shocked. And, and they goes, Michael, I said, yeah. And they just took me away then. They take Michael for questioning. But after attacks in Paris and Brussels, he feels there's no real will to prosecute him and others who've been fighting Islamic State. They weren't happy with what I'd done, but they could understand why I'd done it. And anyway, he's something that British security want. In my time in Iraq, I'd gathered a lot of information and pictures and coordinates and stuff like that, so it was planned that I would take back uh, information from other volunteers as well, so they'd give it, they'd give it to me in the YPG safe house the night I was leaving, and uh, we downloaded on USB keys, and I took back information from three or four other volunteers, including my own information, and uh, brought it back and gave it to the authorities. Yeah? I was advised not to go there again and advised not to speak to too many people and the usual shy talk and then I was left go then into the custody of the British Army MPs. I was taken into their custody and brought up to Catholic Garrison then put in the guardhouse up there then. And then I was let out then, let out, let home. And after interrogation by the Iraqi police, MI6 and his army bosses, Michael just breezes back into Ireland. I came in, I came in from England on the boat uh, came into Dublin, got the train to Cork. Didn't see nobody, didn't speak nobody, like a ghost. Came to Cork. Um, about two weeks after I'd been home, then I got a, a phone call from a guard in Dublin, a detective, saying could he come down to Cork and have a conversation with me. So I said, cool. The guardie are interested in what he has to say about Iraq and what he's seen. In my final interview with Michael last January, six months ago, we had a conversation which at the time I questioned. There's people that might say you're going out there as Irish citizens and engaging with ISIS have actually made Ireland less safe, have kind of notified ISIS that there's Irish fighters out there. The thing about Ireland is ISIS will not attack Ireland. We have no military strategical uh, reason to attack us. We offer no nothing to them. We are a scapegoat. You can come into this country on a plane, on a false passport. You can come in by boat, you can come in through Northern Ireland. We're, Ireland is a country where ISIS fighters and sleeper cells can come here, stay here for as long as they want, do what they want, under the radar, and then move on. Ireland is a stepping stone. But as we now know, in June 2017, a man travelled from Dublin with an Irish ID and killed people at London Bridge. When I started interviewing Michael, Someone asked me if I thought telling his story was ethically right. And then I wondered where ethics fit in a war zone. The solution that you were pursuing was a solution that involved violence. You tell me one man that can make ISIS agree a ceasefire. Yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. They don't care about a ceasefire. They don't want the ceasefire. They want the war. We have to give them a war. It's the only way to defeat them. Like. I have been conflicted by Michael's account, but he has been upfront about his past and it's well known that facts get lost in war. Already, we've had to use Michael's assumed name to protect his identity. The truth is we'll never know the nuts and bolts of Michael's story, 
and if these volunteers change anything and how it impacts on their personal lives. You know, you need to be around for your kids in the future and so to put yourself in harm's way like that, you know, is not a very selfish thing to do. I love my kids to bits and I see them as much as I can. I financially support them, you know, but I don't live with my kids and it is what it is, you know, it's a hard situation, but you just make the best of it, you know. People call me a hero now these days and I laugh at them. <laughs> I say, you don't know nothing. I says, you weren't calling me a hero when I joined the British Army. Same thing, same thing, different circumstances, but exactly the same thing. So um, we're not selfish, no, no way. Maybe it's the case that nations rely on soldiers like Michael to fight their wars. As we all know of the terrorist attacks that happen in the United Kingdom and, and in Europe at the moment, a lot of people look at these volunteers that are going out there and go, you're actually on the front line here, you are protecting us here in the UK. Time will tell if they made a difference, but it's very small wars and small battles that each one of them are fighting. But maybe like Emil says, there's a lot of people out there fighting their own personal wars. How do you measure success on a tour of duty like that? Some people would just go on about killing. Personally, myself, I was training Peshmerga soldiers how to fire long range. That's success. Because when you come home, no matter how many people got killed or you killed or who killed who, that, that, you can't change that. And maybe trying to make sense of war and the reasons people choose to go can never leave you fully satisfied. A lot of these volunteers come back to, come back and they may do a mundane job or they might not be happy with their girlfriend or their wife and they want to go, right, I've had enough of this. It's easier being out there. And that's what they get for standing toe-to-toe in a bar with someone and go, well, what'd you do, mate? What's your job? Oh, I've just been out fighting Islamic State. Is that kudos that goes with it. The amount of things that we bicker over and argue over here just, just fries my head, you know, crazy, like... Like, even walking around Cork this morning, I'd, I'd prefer to be over there now. And maybe all we can say for sure is that this is a soldier's story. Did you kill anyone out there? I've been asked this question time and time and time again. I shot at people. People were hit. I, I couldn't go out and check their bodies, like. But I don't know, like, you know, it's, it's, it's them or me, you know what I mean? Nice guys don't win wars, you know.